following is a recording of a sermon given at All Saints Lutheran Church in Ottawa, Canada. For additional messages and more information, visit allsaintslutheran.ca. So this morning we're looking at the second sort of half of 1 John chapter 3. We're looking at verses 11 through 24. In my email that I sent on Friday, I provided a link to an excellent overview of 1 John. I've mentioned how struck I've been by how this letter actually works. Uh, I, what I wrote to you was, it's now I sound like John, what I wrote to you was how I've, well, I've studied the Bible, I've, I've read the whole thing more than once. Certain biblical books I've read more than others, First John being one of them. I was in a church where it was taught through uh, over a year's time, much slower than what I'm, what I'm doing. I always related to 1 John as almost like it was a primer. We often treat the Gospel of John in the same way. And I think the reason for that is it's very easy to take a verse here and a verse there and kind of run with it. But when we start looking very carefully what John is writing, both in his Gospel and in his, his three letters, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, not to mention the book of Revelation, which sadly too many people have sim- tried to simplify for us. Um, when you start to actually look at it carefully, you see that it's actually quite difficult to understand. And so what I shared in my email, I know some people have watched it, is a video overview of First John. And if you haven't yet seen it, I strongly encourage you to do so. Uh, because the, the person narrating the video does such a good job at unpacking uh, a very complex way of presenting information in a, I won't say simple, but in a very orderly way. So that's the advertisement for that. I think you will find it very beneficial. And so at the end of last, last week, um, we're going to look at the last two verses just to start off and calling it the lead-in into the section we're looking at. So chapter 3, verses 9 and 10, John writes, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Frankly, I don't hear a lot of preaching like this. I don't hear a lot of songs that sound like this. John is so black and white, but you do need to understand this whole letter to understand how his black and whiteness works. And that is, he's, he's saying, in a sense, well, to simplify what he's saying, a true child of God lives a righteous life, which includes ongoing confession of sin. I alluded to that earlier when we had our confession time, John is very clear that the true child of God doesn't deny that we sin. At the same time, the true child of God lives a basic righteous life that will have failure in it, 
but the true child of God does not excuse sin, and the child of God values, not just in, in thought, but in action, God's way of living. And so let's continue. Verse 11. For this is the message that you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Now scholars discuss what beginning? The very beginning? The beginning of creation? The beginning of when Jesus first came? Or more likely, you heard this message from the beginning of when the gospel was presented to you. It's something that marks John's teaching about Jesus is the call to love one another, taken from his gospel. When John, rather when Jesus, taught his disciples in the upper room during their last Passover together, that as he loved us, so we should love one another. And it seems that this love one another in the way that Jesus loved us is central, it's core, it's a hallmark of John's teaching. John is saying to them, you've heard this from the beginning. Maybe it's a way of saying you've heard this again and again and again, and I'm not going to stop reminding you. Verse 12, we should not be like Cain. This is a major contrast to the message of loving one another, loving one another like Jesus. He says we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And so he brings up the story of Cain and Abel, taken from Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. A story that is very familiar to many. Um, but let's remind ourselves of it. Partly because often there's assumptions about the story and even details of the story that we, because of the way we've thought about it, we tend to read into the story itself. So in the story of Cain and Abel, Abel brings an offering of, uh, Abel was a, um, a shepherd, Cain was a farmer, Cain brought an offering of, of that which grew from the ground, and Abel brought an offering from the flock. We're told that God had regard for Abel's offering and not for Cain's. But it doesn't say why. It simply said that he had regard for Abel's offering and not for Cain's. So this is, you know, this is where scholars and preachers have a heyday. Uh, and what happens is we begin to assume that we know what it says when it doesn't say what we think what we think it's saying. The passage doesn't say why. In uh, the book of Hebrews, it refers to Abel's faith. Um, then, of course, there's what often is read into it is the need for animal sacrifice, but it doesn't say that that's what the problem was. So the Hebrews, what Hebrews says is, is something to, is more reliable in a sense that it may have more to do with the attitude of their hearts than what exactly it was that they offered. But that's not really the essence of the story. The essence of the story of Cain and Abel is how Cain dealt with the fact that God 
didn't have regard for his offering, but did have regard for Abel's offering. That infuriated him. He got angry, and he got depressed. And his attitude toward God's um, regard and not regard for their offerings is what led Cain to do away with his brother. So instead of repenting and getting right with God, whatever the problem was, he chose to get rid of the good guy. That's what Cain did. The do-gooder infuriated him. God didn't approve of what he did. And so instead of owning that and dealing with it, he took his he, he took his offense out on his brother and rid the earth of him. In the Gospel of John, chapter 3, verses 19 through 21, we read, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But what whoever does what is true comes to the light so it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. There's something about when we do deeds of darkness that we begin to resent and even hate the light. Just watch the news. The anger towards righteousness, the anger towards people that, and we're going to hear more and more, People who want to do what is good and right are going to be the objects of murderous hatred. So he says, and this is why he shares the story of Cain and Abel, verse 13, do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. So what was going on in these communities that John had this relationship with is you had those who were being true to the, the true essence of the gospel, which was believing in the true historical man Jesus as the Messiah and Savior, and that he was the Son of God, and then loving one another. That's the message. That's true faith. You had those people, and then you had others who were either denying that Jesus was really a man, denying that he's really the Messiah, denying all sorts of things about the truth, and their reaction towards the faith, true faithful ones, was resentment and anger. And so the true believers needed to be encouraged. And, you know, some people, when they face animosity, they have the kind of personality that goes, what's your problem? Like, what's wrong with you? In other people, there's a tendency to absorb the emotions and attitudes of other people. And we could talk about people-pleasing, but I, I think it's more complicated than that. Often it's because we love people. We want connection with people. You know, there's uh, people who've been our friends, people who are family. We want to be together with them. And it's so hard when they begin to get angry at us. And instead of keeping a clear mind and seeing for lack of a better term, what's wrong with them, 
Krishna, it's really hard. You know, other people, everybody's always wrong. It's always them. But for others of us, it's like, what did I do? What did I do wrong? How can I make it up to you? How can I make you happy? And we want to fit in. We want to connect. We don't want people to be angry at us. And so the true believers need to learn a very important lesson about life. That those who live righteously, who are true believers, who love God and have authentic love for others, get hated. They get hated. How many of you like that? Yeah, I don't. I don't like it at all. And I I don't know about you, but I live an I live a very conflicted life because for some reason I can see these dynamics at work. I see hypocrisy. I see inconsistency. I see I see these things. And yet I don't want I don't I want everybody to like me all at the same time. And that could I'm smiling now, but that could be really, really miserable. I hate it, to be honest. I don't like it at all. And it's, it's it, I, whether it's people in my family, like my extended family, my own kids, like I struggle so much because I want to be able to speak truth, but I want them to like me. And you can't have it both ways. I can't have it both ways. And I don't like it at all. So let's continue. Verse 14. You thought maybe that's going to give you a solution to that problem. I don't really have it yet. It's just very, very uncomfortable. I know, I think I know what I need to do. But I still often know how to do it. Verse 14. We know that we've passed out. <laughs> if you leave it like that, could you imagine? We know that we've passed out. No, it doesn't say that. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. I was just talking about how there's these true believers, then there's these other ones. Some of them might still be in the fellowship. Many of them have seen they've gone off and they're preaching lies. And somehow it's making things difficult for the true believers in these communities. Um, but it's possible. And the more I think about it, I've been giving it a lot of thought. I probably should pray about it more than I do, giving it a lot of thought as I've been going through this letter week by week. That thing I've talked about, it's so easy to absorb the feelings of other people. Many of us tend to want to please others. It's so easy, therefore, to fall into the trap of becoming like them. And somehow, even though we know it is right, our behavior begins to... Uh, we model the behavior of the, those who are more aggressive. I don't know if that makes sense. But instead, when we're facing that pressure, we need to understand that in order to truly live as God's children, we need to behave as God's children. And if we do not love, we remain, we abide in death. Verse 15, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. 
This is a, a um, an allusion to the, the story of Cain and Abel. Cain hated his brother so much that it led to murder. It's an echo of the Sermon on the Mount. And a lot of people think that Jesus says there that those, those who hate their brother is a murderer. It doesn't actually say that. It does say that about lust. And that's why it gets a little confused. But I think the point's the same. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus goes to, to, to lengths to explain to us that it's not just our actions that matter. It's our heart attitudes that matter. In Cain's case, that which was birthed in his heart led to highly destructive action. And I think a lot of us, a lot of us have gotten off, gotten off because we, with our anger, with our hatred, perhaps we've gotten to the precipice of very, very destructive behavior but have not gone that next millimeter and done the thing that maybe we've been tempted to do. It's very dangerous to allow animosity, jealousy, hatred to percolate in our hearts. Paul talks about putting to death the deeds of the flesh. Very, very strong language. And a lot of us want to think that if we're true believers, we're not going to struggle with these things. They're just going to go away. And when you read 1 John, it, it almost sounds like that's what he's saying, but it's not. Because if we say we have no sin, we're liars, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, that means we deal with, with the darkness that we discover in our hearts and that sometimes expresses in our actions. And we need to be reminded that to allow animosity, hatred, jealousy to percolate in our hearts. We don't, we're not abiding in Jesus. And it's a very, very dangerous place to be. Verse 16, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. John defines love by Jesus' definition of love through his sacrificial and practical death. Jesus died for our sins. That's not just a, a cosmic happening. It's more than that. It's when Jesus died for us on the cross, he broke the power of sin. He broke the power. He arranged for forgiveness. He wasn't just showing off some magnificent feat. What he did has practical implications for our lives if we will take advantage of them. And so John and Jesus define love by the giving ourselves up sacrificially for our brothers and sisters. But notice John's particular application of this principle. Verse 17. I'm going to start with verse 16 again so we glue them together properly. By this we know love that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? So he he does something that we don't expect. We, we would think that if Jesus laid down his life for us, and 
we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers, and we should give up our lives for our brothers and sisters. But he he ties the giving up of our lives to practically helping people with material goods. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Now, it's possible that martyrdom, the giving up one's life for our faith, was not an issue at this time for these communities. But there might have been material needs that the fellow brothers and sisters were not meeting. And so he goes from this, this example of fully giving up one's life to this smaller example of sharing our goods with one another. I, I think a really good prayer for us would be, Father, how do you want us to do that in our community? Certainly there are material needs. And some churches are better than other churches in, in doing that. There are various programs to help uh, people who are uh, struggling financially. And of course, if anybody here that has those kinds of needs, we need to make them known and we could do our best to help you. But I wonder if there's other needs. And I don't have a list prepared. We need to ask the question, what are the needs? Are they emotional? Are they relational? Are they social? What are they? God, what is it that you're calling us to do in our fellowship and beyond? How are we to give up our lives at this time? What does it really mean for us to love one another? Verse 18, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. So not just words, but actions, authentic actions. 19, by this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. Now this section has been very confusing for many people. And I may have gotten some insight, I don't mean directly from the Lord, hopefully with his help, but in some of my reading this week. I'm actually, I'm going to read that again. I'm going to read 19, 20, and 21. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. Um, it seems what he's talking about here, I should say first, what's often thought of here is that... Um, if we love our brothers, even if we feel guilty, God knows knows better, and we can have assurance that we're right with God. But there seems to be something more here. When it talks about whenever God left city workers, that wasn't as loud as some other trucks and vehicles and gone by. But it talks about whenever our heart condemns us, there is this, it's possible what he's talking about here is it's a leading of our heart to actually do what is wrong. That when we are tempted not to love our brothers and sisters, to not give our material goods to one another, and there's this self-justification of when we want, we don't want to do what God wants us to do. And we need to be reminded that God knows what he's talking about. And 
when we are out of sorts and we don't want to do what God wants us to do, we need to remember that God knows what he's talking about. And the way we reassure our heart before him is by obeying him. When we go against how we feel and do what God wants us to do. So again, verse 21, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. Verse 22, Whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. There's something about a life of obedience which includes confession of sin. There's something about a life of obedience that opens the gates of communication with God. When we ignore him, we can sing the songs, we can come to service, we can read the Bible, pray the prayers, so to speak. But if we are not truly walking with him by obeying him, then our prayers will remain unanswered. Now, some people use verse 22, whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commands to do it. Jesus him. Their impression here that just pray the, pray the prayers, God's going to answer the prayers, that's that. But what's going on here, it's addressing people who are truly walking with God, the people who truly have a heart for God, people who truly have a heart for God's people. And it's the prayers that emerge from a life of loving God and loving one another. Those prayers will be answered. Verse 23, and this is his commandment that we believe in the name of the Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. John, again, reiterates what he's been saying. God's directed to us, his commandment, is to entrust ourselves to Jesus, who is God's Son and our Messiah, and we are to love one another. Verse 24, whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. It's living according to God's directives is how we remain in God and he in us. Continuing verse 24, close with this, and by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. So this awareness of God's presence with us is not just a, a, a good feeling that we have because we're doing the right thing. There's a dynamic of the Holy Spirit at work. And when we truly have entrusted ourselves to the Lord and respond to him accordingly as Lord, that the Holy Spirit himself testifies to us that God is really with us. And this Holy Spirit himself expresses himself through us because we are truly abiding in Jesus by trusting him and obeying him. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you. We thank you that you've not left us in the dark, but that you've given us your word. Lord, whenever we think of obeying you, often it seems too hard. But we thank you for what you've done so that the power to obey could be in us. This is still, it's hard to understand, Lord. On one hand, we want to give it all over to you and sit back and just watch you work. But you call us to engage you. You call us to respond to you. And the marks of your children are, are lives that obey you. 
lives where we love one another and to neglect that you've told us is to give evidence that we don't really know you. And then when we think about that when we feel guilty we don't meet your standard but we never will. Because we do deal with sin. And sin seeks to drag us away from you. Thank you that your son's sacrifice is more than sufficient to truly forgive us, even in the midst of our struggles to do what is right. And because of your forgiveness, we are freed to live a life of righteousness even though we still fail. Help us, Lord. Help us not to be discouraged, but help us to understand how much you have accepted us. Free us to live lives truly as your children. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. For additional messages and more information, please visit us on the web at allsaintslutheran.ca Thank you.